We continue in our journey through the Gospel of John. We've had a couple of breaks with the Christmas and the New Year's messages from Colossians. And so we go back into the Gospel of John. And here we're going to encounter the event that took place, the healing at Bethesda. It's a, um, a healing that only John records. It's the third miracle that John communicates to us in his Gospel. Remember that he only talks about eight miracles, and this is the third one. And so the earthly ministry of Jesus created an unprecedented sensation in all of Israel. They had never heard anybody speak and teach the way Jesus did. They've never seen anybody perform the kinds of miracles that Jesus did. And so for three and a half years, Jesus created such a stir that people just naturally flocked to be near Him, to see Him, to hear Him, and many followed after Him in hopes that He would give to them an incredible blessing. These things that Jesus did, these things that Jesus taught, authenticated that He was in fact the Son of God who He claimed Himself to be and the long-awaited Messiah for Israel. Now, as a part of his sensational ministry, Jesus frequently chose to do miracles that alleviated people's suffering. He didn't heal everybody. He could have, but he didn't do that. For reasons that we could never know, in his sovereignty, he chose people that he would heal or he would raise from the dead as he saw fit. And so as a part of this sensational ministry and all the healings that are recorded in all of the Gospels, Large crowds of people were following after him as they sought to see what he was going to do next. When Jesus began to teach about the kingdom of God, and when he began to make application of the scriptures to himself as the fulfillment of the prophecies that spoke of the Messiah, the anger and the hostility towards him began to ratchet up very, very quickly. It never diminished what he taught. He always taught with boldness and with confidence and with authority and with accuracy about who he was. And much different from the scribes and the teachers of the law in his day, who primarily quoted other people, Jesus spoke with the divine power as only the Son of God can. So as people saw these things and heard these things, They just flocked to him in the thousands, so much so that it was often difficult for him to navigate through the area that he was in. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In Luke 19.43, it says, All the people were hanging on to every word he said. The people were excited by his astonishing miracles and the powerful preaching that they heard from him. And so they just continued to come to him. Matthew 4.25 Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew 8.1 After the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Matthew 13.2 Large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach listening to his preaching. I wonder how many of you would go to the beach and stand there to listen to somebody teach God's Word. I don't know if you would or not. It amazes me in Asia, people will stand in line in the heat and the cold and the pouring rain because they're so hungry for the truth of God's Word 
Yet I think here in America we're especially lazy as we think about what other people will do in order to get a part of God's truth. Luke chapter 12 verse 1. So many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. This is the kind of sensational atmosphere Jesus was creating through His teaching and His works. But as we know the whole story, His popularity didn't last for very long, did it? Eventually, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and other groups, the Jewish people themselves began to leave Him And then the Pharisees began an unrelenting attack against him. They not only rejected his teaching, but they accused him of being demon-possessed and performing his miracles by the power of Satan himself. That's how much the Pharisees disliked who Jesus was and what it was he was saying about himself. The Pharisees were most outraged that Jesus had the audacity to do these miraculous deeds on the Sabbath. And this became, in many respects, the tipping point in Jesus' public ministry. And this is what we're going to see in our passage today. In John's Gospel, these next three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, begin to show how the attitude of the nation began to shift from following Him and to abandoning Him. Jesus' ministry began with great acceptance with some reservation, and it shifted to rejection with almost no reservation. While his cleansing at the temple created some antagonism amongst the Jewish leadership, this healing at Bethesda is the beginning of significant hostility that will be expressed towards him. Join with me as we read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then First, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was affected. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition and said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So we'll look at our passage of Scripture in three major sections here. The first one we're going to look at is the setting. 
The setting we find beginning in verse 1, that after these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after these things is a segue to the lengthy ministry in Galilee that John doesn't really spend any time elaborating on. You can go and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there is a report of many, many things that Jesus did in that time. Many more events, extended preaching that began in Matthew chapter 4, a number of healings that took place, including Peter's mother-in-law. And so it is after this time in Galilee, this unknown amount of time, perhaps six months or longer, that Jesus was in Galilee and He was ministering amongst the people. And so now it's time for Jesus to return to Jerusalem. John indicates that there was a feast. And so there are three major feasts. And as a responsible Jew, you had to travel back to Jerusalem for these three major feasts. Now John doesn't identify which feast this is. It's the only one of the six mentioned in John's Gospel that he doesn't identify with which feast it actually was. But it provides an explanation while Jesus left Galilee and then journeyed back to Jerusalem. So as He is on His way into Jerusalem for this feast, He arrives at Bethesda. Verse 2, There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And so John provides a little bit of information for those who aren't familiar with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by a large wall. It encompasses the city proper. And in the northeast corner of the wall, there is this sheep gate. And in this sheep gate area, there is a natural spring or a pool that accumulates water. It's a pretty large spring that is in that area. So this pool is called Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy. So as Jesus is entering into the city, he comes across this pool of Bethesda, which is a large body of water, if you will, fed by a natural spring. And in this location, there are five porticos, or porches, if you will, that have been built to accommodate all of the people. Now, this isn't a pool like you and I think of a pool with floats and diving boards and cookout and lounge furniture. wasn't anything like that. This area was a place of suffering. Verse 3 And these porticos, which provided shade for these people, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. These porticos, these shaded porch areas, were just filled with sick people. Multitude means a lot. Hundreds of people who were sick and lame and withered would gather in these porticos because of the thought that this body of water was going to do something special for them if they could, in fact, be the first person that entered in after the water was stirred. I don't know that you and I can accurately imagine a scene like this where you've got hundreds of people who are sick beyond cure, Blind and lame, no ability to get up and get around. Withered means dried up. Don't know if it means they were just really old or if their infirmities were so bad that they just wasted away. We don't really know what it's like. But I can't imagine what it would look like 
to see hundreds of people gathered around this pool of water, sitting there for days and weeks, months and even years, hoping for a miracle. We forget that in this day and age, medicine really wasn't going to help you a whole lot. There was not a lot that people could do when you got sick or when you were blind. So this place is a place of suffering and it is thought to be a place, or excuse me, it is a place of imagined miracles. So let's finish reading verse 3 and then read verse 4 and I have to make some notes about that. So they gathered in these porticos and it says, waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, if you look in your Bible, you're going to see in the middle of verse 3 to the end of verse 4 a bracket or a parenthesis or an asterisk or some kind of a notification that gives you a clue about these verses. In the earliest Greek manuscripts, these verses don't appear. Well, how'd they get there? Well, in the early days of Christianity, the first couple of hundred years afterwards, there wasn't a printing press. It couldn't just make copies of God's Word. So they began to handwrite God's Word. And so what the scribes did was they added this, these verses, this one and a half verses, into the text as a note margin, as a way of explaining why the numbers of people gathered in these porticos, and what it was they were expecting to happen. So when we look at verse 3b and verse 4, there are several words and phrases that don't show up in any of John's writings. There's three words that don't appear anywhere in the New Testament. That's typically a clue to textual scholars that somebody else has added something or inserted something into this letter. Now, it wasn't uncommon for a personal scribe of one of the apostles to inject something, and it would look very different from what the original author would have said. For example, in Paul's writings, you can see things that were added by his personal scribe, and the wording and the phraseology is somewhat different. Also, the reference to angels that we see here doesn't appear anywhere else in this passage. And so it kind of stands out as if it doesn't really fit. Maybe it's not supposed to be there. So as a result, most scholars believe that a scribe at some point inserted this as a note margin to give explanation as to why the people were waiting in these porticos and what it was they were hoping to happen. Now, the early church father, Tertullian, one of the guys who was a part of the canonization of Scripture and evaluating the letters and giving authenticity to what was said and accuracy across all of what is in the Bible, Tertullian referred to the superstition of the angels stirring the water in the late 2nd or early 3rd century. And so this makes sense as to why a scribe would have put these verses in a margin as a note as to why these individuals waited at this pool in hopes of a miracle. Now, this in no way means that the Bible isn't accurate or that it's filled with errors. It just means that some of these verses aren't in the earliest manuscripts 
And there are justifiable reasons why they are included in the Scripture and why the translators mark these verses this way as an indication that this wasn't in the earliest Greek manuscript that is in existence. So don't think that this means that the Bible isn't infallible or isn't inerrant or isn't trustworthy. That's not what it means at all. But when you read these two verses in light of John's passage and looking at his writings as a whole, it just stands out as a little bit odd. So the scribe, whoever it was that put this in as a note margin, has provided an understanding as to why all these people are gathered here waiting for this miracle. So there is in Jerusalem this belief that these waters, the pool of Bethesda, had some kind of miraculous healing power in them, and because of that, people who were sick flocked to it in hopes that when a surge of of water from the spring came into the pool, i.e. the angel stirring the water, if you were the first one in, then you were going to be healed. Now, probably at some point, somebody got into the water, and they felt better, and they began to tell others that they were healed from whatever problem they had. And that grew, and it grew, and it grew to the point where they had to build five porticos that could hold the hundreds of people who were hoping and had belief in this superstitious miracle to take place at the pool of Bethesda. Now, this inclusion doesn't mean it affirms that this is what took place, but it explains why the people gathered there. Think about it like this. All over the world, there are shrines and imagined holy places where people claim to have seen something or heard something or have been healed from something. And as news of that spreads, people begin to come to these areas because they believe in this superstitious kind of healing. Think of it like this. Think about, think about it like Area 51, but instead of aliens, you've got spiritual healing taking place. So this note margin explains why these people have gathered in hopes of getting healed. Five porticos holding hundreds of people. An unimaginable sight, at least for me, to think about what that would look like and what would that do to you when you looked out the vast hopelessness that existed in that area. So that's the setting. Now we come to section two, the miracle. Begin in verse five here. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Think about it. 38 years this guy has been hanging out at the pool of Bethesda in one of the porticos hoping that he could be the first one into the water after it had stirred in the belief that he was actually going to be healed from his sickness, whatever that was. John doesn't tell us what it is. Remember, only the first one was going to have the potential of being healed. How would the sick and blind and crippled people get to the water first? Man, it it makes your stomach turn when you think about the hopelessness in these lives And this desire of getting into the water, it's like needing to win the lottery in order to make it to the next month. Who wins the lottery? I don't know anybody wins the lottery. Somebody does, but I don't know who they are. There's no indication how frequently people would be able to see the water stirred and then get into it. 
Did it happen daily? Was it weekly? Was it every couple of months? Who knows? But here you have all of these people who were sitting in this pool, around this pool, hoping to be the first one in, and this guy has been there 38 years. This is 2019. This guy's been there since 1981. That's a long time, isn't it? The hopelessness that is in this man's life is absolutely overwhelming as he's waiting and hoping to be the first one into the water. So Jesus arrives into the midst of immense hopelessness. The Son of God shows up. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? Now, Jesus in his sovereignty and his omniscience knew exactly what was wrong with this man. He knew how long he had been there. He knew the hopelessness and the desperation that was in this guy's life. He didn't need anybody to tell him that. He knows it all because he is the Son of God. Jesus sees the man and he offers help. He engages this man and asks him if he wants to get well. Now, to you and I, that sounds like maybe it's a pretty strange question to ask, right? Why would you ask him a question like that? Of course he wants to get well. He's been here for an incredibly long time. And he has no hope outside of this superstitious miracle making him whole. But Jesus' questions, his interactions with people, are never callous or flippant or just idle conversation. His question here serves several purposes. One is, it secured the man's full attention Do you want to get well? Who is this guy that's talking to me? I wouldn't imagine that there's a lot of visitors at the pool of Bethesda and people coming down to say, hey, how you doing? Think you're going to get better today? Think you're going to be the first one in? By asking this question, he's offering him healing. Someone cared about his position and was seemingly willing to do something about it in asking the question, do you want to get help? Perhaps this individual has a way of making me well. This question focused on this man's need. He really wasn't all alone in the midst of this overwhelming multitude of sick and lame and blind and crippled people. The man's desperation is what Jesus is offering some help for. The sick man answered him and said, this is verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Always somebody faster, always somebody closer, always somebody else more fortunate than I. This man is not crippled or blind but so sick that he struggles to get to the water on his own in a speedy fashion. So he's in great need of help. Someone has to get him into the water so that he can be the first if in fact this water can heal him from his sickness. Now, he doesn't know who Jesus is and he has no idea about the possibility that this man may actually be able to heal him. It never enters his mind. He simply explains... 
I want to get well, but I've got no way to get into the water. Now, this is what I think is so startling to me in these encounters that Jesus has with these people. We see the Lord's command. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. There's no conversation about this body of water. There's no discussion about it is or isn't accurate. There isn't any challenge to his life about what it is he's putting his faith in or his hope in. There's nothing but the simple command to get up. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Get up and walk. It is a powerful command. It holds the same kind of power in it that enables Jesus to speak our universe into creation. Jesus, through the spoken Word, has the ability to make lives whole. So He's telling this man, He's commanding this man, upon My words, get up off your feet, get that straw mat from underneath you, and begin to walk. This guy's been unable to walk for 38 years. Or at least unable to walk very quickly. It's important to notice that there's no mention of faith connected to this healing. He wasn't asked to believe in Jesus. He wasn't asked to repent of his sin. He wasn't asked to give any kind of doctrinal dialogue about what it was he believed in. He wasn't asked to follow Jesus. He was simply told to get up and to walk, and the man simply obeyed the command. The first part of verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. You know, one of the cruelest, one of the cruelest lies of the contemporary quote-unquote faith healers is that the people that fail to get healed are guilty of sinful unbelief or an inadequate amount of faith, or they have some kind of a negative confession associated with their life. The airways have no shortage of these faith healers who will tell you that if you will sow a seed, if you'll just believe, if you'll give or if you'll do, you can be healed from your sickness. You know, in fact, there's a very prominent one, and if you watch any TV, you're going to see this guy. And he uses this example this pool of Bethesda, and if you'll just write to him, he'll send you a little packet of miracle spring water, and you're going to have financial heyday. You're just going to get rich. You're going to get well. Everything's going to be right in your world. But if it doesn't happen, it's not my fault. It's your fault because you don't have the faith. You've got some kind of sin in your life. You didn't believe. It's an incredible evil way that so-called preachers prey on those who are desperate. Well, we see here God's sovereign grace in action requiring nothing from this individual other than obey the command. Just get up and walk, and that's exactly what the man does. And so the man is completely healed instantly, but that, of course, is not the end of the story. The third section we look at here is the persecution. Now, John doesn't identify particularly what the persecution is, 
But it is mentioned here at the end of our passage in verse 16. So the persecution begins. The second half of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Now that seemingly incidental note is the whole key to the passage. It's what sets this whole event on its heels is the fact that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. It sets the stage for the open hostility that the Jewish authorities are going to begin to express towards Jesus and His ministry. The fury of their opposition is fueled at this pool. It only escalates throughout the remainder of His earthly ministry, finally culminating in His death when the crowds of people screamed, Crucify! Crucify! The fact that it happened on the Sabbath is key to this. And Jesus has violated the Sabbath. Now, you'll see I put up on the screen there, not really. And you need to know that He didn't really violate the Sabbath. The Old Testament prohibited working on the Sabbath. It doesn't specifically indicate or identify what work is or what work is to be excluded but it seems that one's customary employment was in mind here. So if you made pots, then you didn't make pots on the Sabbath day. If you were a baker, then you didn't bake on the Sabbath day. If you were in carpentry, then you didn't do carpentry on the Sabbath day. That was the initial intent. But by the time of Jesus' ministry, the rabbinic tradition included 39 forbidden categories of work. Categories, not individual elements, but 39 categories of forbidden work. And one of those was the carrying of goods. So Jesus really violated rabbinic law, not biblical law, and there is a huge difference. But as far as the Jewish authorities were concerned, Jesus has violated the Sabbath. And as a result of that, they were Outrage. Verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was, caught, who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, think about this. This man has been at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, so sick that he was incapable of getting into the water in an expeditious fashion. He was unable to care for himself in any way, shape, or form. And here are the religious leaders angry because he's carrying a pallet and not rejoicing in the fact that he had been healed. Can you see the callousness that exists within the hearts of these religious leaders? This man didn't carry straw mats for a living. It has been his home He's been an invalid for 38 years. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine coming into our church and castigating an individual who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And praise God, they have been miraculously healed. And you've known of the illness, and you've known of the healing, and you come down to them and you say, how dare you sit in my seat? I've been sitting in this seat ever since this church was built. What gives you the right to sit in my seat. Explain yourself. Could you imagine that? That's the kind of 
paradox you see here in this man being healed from this 38-year calamity and the Jewish leaders are concerned because he's walking around with a straw mat under his arm because he had just been healed and released from the hell that is the pool of Bethesda. This man, however, is defensive in this exchange he has with the religious leaders. Verse 11, But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. Clearly this man is afraid of these religious authorities, and he doesn't confront them with the justification for his carrying them at because he has just been healed, and he's going to go find some relative that he can now live with. What he does is he defects, deflects the blame of his violation of the Sabbath onto the guy who made him well. It's not my fault I'm carrying my mat. It's that guy who told me to get up and walk and to take my pallet. Don't blame me. Blame him. That's exactly what this guy is doing. There appears to be no thankfulness on this man's part, not only here, but as we'll see a few verses later, and he simply shifts the blame of his Sabbath violation, not to himself, but on the one who had the power and the ability to heal him, from this 38-year sickness. But the authorities press the issue. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? Just let me at that guy because I'm going to tell him what's up here. He can't do that. Who does he think he is? These religious leaders would stop at nothing to apprehend anybody that they deemed a violator or a blasphemer of the things that they held near and dear in their lives. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus to find someone that he could throw into jail or perhaps even kill for their profession of faith. And this Jesus, that's how seriously they took this offense of breaking the Sabbath. The man simply does not know. Verse 13, The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. That indicates here that this guy had no idea who Jesus was. He had no idea that it was Jesus who was talking to him. Had knew nothing about the miracles or the teaching. He simply obeyed this man's command to stand up and walk. Jesus approached him and then healed him and then disappeared in the crowd. But Jesus makes it clear who it was that healed him. Look what it says here in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. So afterward, there's no timeline given here. We don't know how long the afterward really means. The feasts usually lasted around a week, So we know it was within that time frame. It could have been a couple of hours. It could have been a couple of days. But Jesus took the initiative and found this man in the temple. You could assume that this man is in the temple to worship, to offer a sacrifice, to praise God for whatever, for what has happened in his life. But Jesus is the one that seeks him out and affirms that he is the one that has healed him. And in this affirmation, he also issues a very stern warning. He says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What does Jesus mean by that? That's a good question. There's a lot of debate about what is actually implied in Jesus' command here 
to do not sin any longer or something worse may happen to you. Well, all sickness, all disease, all death is a byproduct of the fall. We can always trace that stuff back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. Some diseases and some illnesses are a consequence of sin, AIDS and the like. But it also appears that some illnesses is the result of sin, not necessarily a consequence of sin. And perhaps this is what Jesus is mentioning or implying in this exchange. Now we see evidence of this in the New Testament. In Corinthians, when Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church, who were making a mockery of the Lord's table. They were eating till they were filled and they were drinking until they were drunk. And he challenged them and said this in 1 Corinthians 11.30. He says, For this reason, this abuse of the, Lord's, of the Lord's Supper, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. By the way, this is why we always want to take the Lord's Supper in an appropriate manner, giving thought to our walk with the Lord, who He is, how we're living, etc., But not all sickness is the specific result of sin, as was the pervading thought in Jewish life. In Jewish life, especially within the rabbinic community and tradition, if you were sick or diseased or disabled in some way, it was because you were a sinner. But Jesus said that that wasn't necessarily the case, as we'll look at down the road. John 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be, might be displayed in him. So it's possible that this man's illness is the consequence of a specific sin or a lifestyle of sin. It's possible that this is the result of sin in his life that has been unrepented of. It's possible it's just the fall. We really don't know what Jesus means by this. But the warning is nonetheless the same. Do not sin anymore or else something worse will happen to you. So, the command here is to be reconciled to God. Stop living a life of sin and get right with God, or something worse is going to happen to you than the 38 years you've just spent in the porticos at the pool of Bethesda. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. Let's suppose that you were miraculously healed from a terminal illness, and in some way God appeared to you and said, do not sin anymore or something worse is going to happen to you. What kind of an impact would that have on your life? You know, there's a lot of students that will say, God, let me pass this test, and I promise I'll never lie again. Some people say, God, don't let me lose my job. I promise I'll never steal again. We always... Well, we sometimes throw out these ultimatums, if you will, begging God to do something for us above and beyond in the hope that we'll be spared from some consequence. But I want to tell you that it would would seem to me that if someone was healed from a terminal illness, they would live a life of absolute and complete devotion to the Lord. No doubt about it. No question. They would do everything they possibly could to spend time in Him and with Him and to live their lives before Him. I think that's what Jesus means here. Be reconciled to God or you're going to face judgment. Now, this man was likely not possessing a saving faith in Christ, didn't know anything about Jesus, 
met him and Jesus disappeared. Jesus reintroduces himself into the temple. Doesn't explain much about who he is, at least from our, uh, our narrative here. The, the something worse here is not going back to Bethesda. It's eternal judgment. We must be reconciled to God. We must not continue to live a lifestyle of sin any longer or else we're going to face judgment. Now, that does not mean you can lose your salvation. If we profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we live a life of wanton public sin, there's probably a problem with with the profession of faith we made. Wouldn't you agree? By the way, that's why a lot of people have a challenge with eternal security. So you mean that I can give my life to Christ and I can go live my life any way I want? That doesn't seem right to me. Well, that's not what it means. Eternal security means that you can't lose what you could not earn. It's grace that provides it. It's grace that sustains it. So I believe the challenge here is for this man to be reconciled to God, to live a life of holiness as he knows he should or else he's going to face judgment. Now, this man does not get it at all. He doesn't understand the warning. He doesn't hear the warning. He's not interested in the warning. He's going to do what he's going to do. Verse 15, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. What kind of thankfulness do you see in that man's life? Hearing this stern warning... The guy immediately runs and tattles on the guy who told him to pick up his pallet and walk. Rather than listening to the one who had healed him, he runs to the authorities and identifies Jesus as that evil Sabbath breaker. That's the guy you want. That's him. Go get him. One of the commentaries I looked at said this, this has to be one of the great acts of ingratitude and obstinate unbelief in all of Scripture. The man did not intend to praise Jesus or worship Jesus or thank Jesus for healing him, but instead he gets in line behind those who will later call for his crucifixion. And the Jews persecute. Verse 16, for this reason, this healing of this man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath day is the reason that they begin to persecute because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That phrase there, we're persecuting, is in a Greek tense which means continually. It just goes on without end. They are always going to persecute Jesus from here on out. So in John's Gospel, this healing at the pool of Bethesda, it casts the die of Jesus' persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders and it's going to get ratcheted up significantly over the remainder of his public ministry. He will face greater challenges than he has right now. And as we know, it culminates in his crucifixion on Calvary. I want to ask you this. It's hard for us to imagine the pool of Bethesda. It's hard for us to imagine the ingratitude that an individual 
might possess after being healed of this. But I'll tell you this, even greater than being healed of some terminal illness is the fact that we've been healed of a spiritual disease that guarantees our separation from God for all of eternity. You and I, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, ought to possess a gratitude and thankfulness for our salvation that drives us to live a life that is wholly separated and consecrated to Him. Why don't you bow your heads, why don't you close your eyes, I want you to think about this. Ask yourself this question, God, why do I not give you all that you deserve? Why do I appear to be unthankful for this great gift of salvation that you've given to me? Father, as we sang early in our service, that we want you to open the eyes of our heart. We want you to show us your Son through your Word. And while this man was healed of his physical illness, there's no indication that he was ever saved. The ingratitude that he possessed isn't too far different from the ingratitude that we might express as we live a life that is self-willed and self-directed. God, would you show us our rebellious heart. Father, would you expose our unwillingness to follow you and surrender to you. God, as you show us these things, as we identify them and deal with them, would you also reveal to us the incredible gift of the cross to provide for our salvation, for our cleansing. Father, you don't ask for perfection. You don't expect that. And we can never live up to that. But we thank you that we don't have to. We know that we can never exhaust your grace. We can never outrun your arm of love. Father, would you give to us a heart that desires to honor you more fully, to serve you more completely? A heart that truly makes you the center of our affection. We thank you, Father, that even though we will one day physically die, spiritually we will live on with you forever. And we worship you for that. We give you thanks for that. May our lives indicate that each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name.